I would like to begin this morning in Isaiah chapter 65. If you'd like to turn there and just hold your place, Isaiah chapter 65. I was doing a little shopping last night. Needed to replace some worn out clothing. And I had a coupon that I was going to redeem and so when I went to the register, I presented my coupon, and I redeemed its value. And as a consequence, I got some money off on my purchase. I always like doing that. That makes me feel good, like I've saved a little money. Even though I spent more than I saved, <laughs> I still feel like I got a bargain. Have you ever thought much about the term redeem, what it means. Uh, it means to recover the value of something, uh, to um, restore something to its original purpose. I had a piece of paper, but that piece of paper, which was not legal currency, happened to be worth $20. If I invested it in the right place at the right time, it had a time work, a time frame on it, and uh, it could only be used at Kohl's. So I had to go there within the date specified in order to redeem my coupon to get the full value of it. Redemption and restoration is something that God is all about, recovering the value of what He has made. And in order to understand the final chapters of Revelation, we have to understand what it is that has been lost that God wants to redeem or recover. That which He wants to trade in, so to speak, for the full value. And we need an overview of history in order to place Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 and so forth in, in the context of the great story that God is proclaiming. And that story is that it is His intent to recover in this world, through human beings, what was lost when Adam and Eve turned away from Him and went their own direction. The world that we see today is not the world as God made it. As beautiful as this day is, and many of us have commented on it, it's, it's a gorgeous fall day. It's just one of those days that you delight in. And uh, those of you that are nature lovers, you get out and you take a hike and you, you see the, the turning of the, uh, fa uh, the flora into the fall uh, kind of nature that it has. And maybe you see turkeys and deer and uh, you get to observe some of nature like that, but... Sometimes what we see is not very pleasant. Sometimes we see the prey and the predator 
I, I remember one morning watching a fox uh, take a rabbit. And uh, that was not a pretty sight. Fascinating, but not nice. Uh, I remember another occasion where a hawk plucked a smaller bird in midair. And the mate to that small bird flew around the tree where the hawk was consuming its recent catch, crying. You could hear the plaintive cry of the mate. And you recognize that a good God who is filled with love would not design a world that was filled with sorrow and weeping and sadness. He would not design a world where death was a part of the equation because it always causes painful separation. And it leads to decay that which he intended to be immortal. And so, if we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we find some interesting things about that garden that um, kind of astound us. And I'll let you go and read this for yourselves in the first several chapters of Genesis. But we learn, for example that um, all of the green things were given to man and to the animals for food. Not each other. All of the green things were given. Uh, we learned that a mist used to rise from the ground and water the earth, kind of like a terrarium. That Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. We often get hung up on that. Uh, we are so self-conscious uh, in our lives today, both uh, because of sin and also just because of our uh, modesty, perhaps. But the Scripture says they were naked and unashamed. And as we focus on the unashamed part, have you ever thought about what it would be like to be naked? On a morning like this morning. How comfortable would you be? How comfortable would you be in January? <laughs> you just waltzed out of the house in your birthday suit to go to work. Wouldn't that be unsettling <laughs> on several levels? <laughs> Did you ever stop to think that the environment was conducive to a natural life? that it was a moderate temperature that they could enjoy year-round, that it was never too cold and never too warm, that they were always comfortable, that they had all they could want to eat, and all of the animals were pets, <laughs> you know, at best. Like Frank Skunk. <laughs> he he was showing a picture this morning of uh, some animals that uh, had been brought over and they got to pet them. And uh, the skunk was not only tame, but I'm sure uh, fixed, shall we say. 
so that it could not uh, put out that putrid, foul odor. But uh, thankfully, but um, wouldn't it be cool to have all the animals as pets and not to worry about being having them turn on us? Wouldn't you just love to hug a lion? A great big fuzzy lion? I would. I think that'd be so cool. Um, God made a world that was absolutely, we use the adjective, Edenic. To describe a place that is so perfect, nothing could be wrong. A paradise. A glorious, beautiful, safe, wonderful place to live where there was no risk of harm or foul and no one was out to do anyone else in. Everyone was safe. That's a world that God actually created. And when He told them not to eat of the fruit of that tree... The only thing in all the world that was off limits to them as a test of their voluntary love for Him, there came the day when they fell prey to the tempter and they followed the devil rather than God. And as a consequence of that, a change occurred, not only in them, God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And although they did not drop dead on the spot, their spirit went out within them, and the Holy Spirit vacated their temple, and they were left spiritually dead. And as a consequence, the enemy of our souls, the devil, began to take over and to rule the earth so that the Scripture says He is called the Prince of the Powers of the Air and the God of this world, small g. does not mean that God has lost His sovereignty or is out of control in any way, but that the consequence of their sin not only affected them, but it affected everything around them. No longer would the ground produce readily a beautiful harvest that was weed and thorn free, but they would have to scrape out their living outside of the garden from ground that would constantly be competing against them for thorns and thistles. And they would labor by the sweat of their brow that which they could so easily simply pluck from a tree. Now they would have to uh, dig and hoe and maintain and plant and harvest and pray for rain and hope that the sun would not scorch their efforts and hope that the winds would not blow them away. All of a sudden, they were thrust into a totally different environment. But we often fail to recognize that by the same token, the enemy began to change and corrupt the world that God had made. 
I believe with all my heart that all of the animals that God made lived harmoniously together in that Edenic paradise. And when the fall occurred, Satan began to alter the features and the propensities of the various animals to turn them against each other as prey and predator. And lions developed sharp teeth with which to rip apart the gazelles or the antelope. And snakes that were on the ground began to bite and inflict poison. And birds of prey began to snatch their catch out of midair. And the whole world went off the rails. I don't know what little tiny black gnats are good for. I don't even know if they're not some dramatic mutation that Satan introduced somehow, but I was working outside a week or so ago, and these little tiny things smaller than a pinhead got all over my arms, and they didn't feel very good, and I kept smacking them, but... um, Boy, within a couple of days, I had welts on my arms that have itched ever since. I'm using up hydrocortisone like it was water. And I wonder what would it have been like when there were no pesky insects and no troublesome creatures that inflict pain and distress in our lives. In a world where there is no disease, in a world where there is no death, and funeral homes do not need to exist because people were designed to live forever. Isaiah 65 describes such a world, beginning in verse 17. Isaiah, the voice of God speaking through him, says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought to be a mere child. You remember the longevity of life in Genesis People living hundreds of years and having the vitality of youthfulness at a hundred years of age. Can you imagine that? What's happened to the world? 
I have some ideas. I don't know if they're worth anything or not. Um, I think the flood upset the uh, ecology of the planet and exposed us to radiation from the sun and from other things in space that we were no longer exposed to before. Someone asked me the other day, uh, how do we answer the question of carbon-14 dating? Well, certainly some errors have been made with carbon-14 dating, but the reality is, I think, is that before the flood, there were no radioisotopes. There wasn't anything that was, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Radioactive, thank you. There wasn't anything that was radioactive. That occurred, I think, after the flood and after the exposure and the solar radiation that we know shortens life, uh, the lifespan. And I think these subtle minor doses uh, have affected us. So we look at um, radio, uh, radioisotopes today like carbon-14 and we say, well, this is the decay rate. And then we try to date backwards from that. But what we're observing today is not the key to the past because we weren't there to see the past. We can't go back 5,000 years, 6,000 years and measure the decay rate of carbon-14. What if it was zero? What if it didn't exist? What if it was something that occurred as a result of the universal flood and the fall? So the consequence is you, you take carbon-14, you measure it now, and you say, okay, it takes this long to decay so we can date this particular thing. But if you only started the clock 5,000 years ago, then when you get back to the beginning of the clock, you can't date anything past that. You have no clue. It could be absolutely zero. In other words, there is no dating method today that can be absolutely relied upon as a valid means of dating things of antiquity beyond a time that we could project as the flood. Take that as it may and uh, go do your own research and make up your own mind, but that happens to be my opinion that people lived hundreds of years because they weren't exposed to things that we're exposed to. The diseases that we're suffering from in our society today and in our world today, I think are largely caused by the things we eat, the things we breathe, and the things we grow. I think we're producing this stuff added to which is the exposure to uh, harmful radiation and other things that are in our environment, we have no idea what we've done to ourselves. We think we're improving things. We're making them worse. And so we're suffering as a consequence of it. But the reality is, is that in this future time, the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered cursed. He only lived a hundred years. What was wrong with him? Because the expectation is that people will live hundreds of years in this period of time. They will build houses and dwell in them. 
They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Verse 22, no longer will they build houses that others live in or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. Think about that next time you see a picture of a California redwood. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer, and while they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. Notice that phrase. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. Neither will there be a harm or destruction on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Do you realize what a radical digestive change that is for a lion? To start eating grass? Cows have five stomachs. They're designed to digest grass. Lions don't have five stomachs. There's going to have to come about a change, which I believe will be redemptive. It'll be restorative. God will recover the original design and purpose. And they will begin to eat straw like the ox eats straw. And the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Not on each other. Well, the lamb never did have much of a say-so in that particular situation. But the wolf will not be after the lamb. They'll be eating together, grazing in the field. Do you see what a radical transformation this is? And I don't believe this is figurative language. I believe that this is predictive prophecy that God has given to Isaiah to say, this is a glimpse of your future. This is what it's going to look like. And why do we need to understand an overview of of, uh, human history and God's redemptive purposes if we believe this and try to contextualize uh, Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Why don't you turn there with me, Revelation 19. I think this morning we're beginning in verse 17. And I'll just read a little bit of the passage for you, beginning in verse 17 of Revelation 19. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come and gather for the great supper of God so that you can eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty horses and their riders, and all the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Recall that Satan has now inspired these ten kingdoms to come against Jerusalem. And this is what we refer to as the battle of of Armageddon. 
and with these signs. Uh, but the beast was captured and the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having a key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. I want us to look for a moment at First uh, Thessalonians chapter uh, 4, I believe. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 13, because Paul talks about this passage that refers to those who come to life at this crucial moment in history when Jesus comes back to this earth. And in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, the scripture says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you will not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. Now, get the picture in your mind. That God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. So when Jesus returns to earth, He's going to bring those who have died in Christ with Him. According to the Lord's Word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. See, the Thessalonians were worried that some of their number had already died and they thought, well, they missed the return of Christ. They're, they're, they're lost. What's going to happen? And Paul says, don't worry about that. They're actually going to be first. And they're going to come back with Jesus. But we who are alive when He comes will not precede those who've fallen asleep. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
so shall we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul says, when Jesus returns, with Him will come all those who have died in Christ, and those who are alive at His coming will be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord in the clouds. This is very analogous to the Jewish wedding feast. Uh, and, and the Jewish marriage feast and how it was conducted in those days. A betrothal occurred. Families came together. A man was betrothed to a woman that is engaged. But that engagement was more binding than our engagement. It was like a marriage. And he would then um, make a commitment to her on the basis of the betrothal that at a certain time in the future, give or take something, (laughs) a few days, months, weeks, whatever, he would return for her. And the reason that there would be a little bit of lapse in time is that while he was away back at his parents' home, he would be adding rooms onto the house so that he could bring his new bride home and have rooms prepared for her. Does that sound like anything you've ever heard before? You know, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you can be also. And when the rooms were ready, the bridegroom would begin to move toward the bride's home. And a shout would go out and the trumpets would sound. The bridegroom is coming. It would be an exciting moment. And the wedding party of the bride would go out to meet the bridegroom. And they would kind of come together in the middle of the streets. And then the bridegroom and the bride's party would go back to her home and celebrate the wedding feast. Does that sound like anything you've ever heard before? that we're going to meet Jesus in the air. And all those who have died in Christ are going to be raised up ahead of us and return with Him, and we're going to celebrate a wedding feast. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the promise. If we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, another passage that picks up on this, if you turn there for just a moment, down toward the end of the chapter, I'm picking out verse 45 so I can get close. And verse 50 is where I'd like us to look. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. So I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. The word there is metamorphosis, metamorphosed. Uh, It's what happens when a caterpillar is lying quietly in the cocoon and then emerges as a butterfly. Um, A dramatic change has taken place, but there is going to be a transformation. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, notice The same message here, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, 
For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's a future. There's a wonderful uh, thing waiting for us in Jesus Christ. There will come a day if we're alive when Jesus returns, a trumpet is going to sound. And those of us sitting here this morning or standing or wherever we are will suddenly be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And in that process, we will be changed. These mortal, physical bodies, subject to illness, subject to death, subject to problems, subject to all of our distresses and diseases, will suddenly be transformed into an immortal body. An immortal body. We're not going to shed our skin and become spirits. Human beings are body, soul, and spirit. We're whole units. And as a whole unit, we're going to be transformed into that which is immortal. And just as Jesus has taken on human flesh forever, now glorified and resurrected, so we will take on glorified flesh that will be resurrected in the transformation along with those who have died in Christ. And this is the promise when the Lord comes. We will be transformed into His likeness. John says, and we have this hope in Him that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. We will behold our Lord Jesus in His glorified state and we will become like Him because we will be seeing Him with our eyes in the resurrection and in the rapture and the metamorphosis of our earthly bodies. So what about this uh, kingdom that is uh, being established now for a thousand years? Going back to Revelation chapter 20, um, he talks about the dead and uh, the throne and those that were seated on it and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. Uh, that's a bit of the anachronism, the out of sequence uh, reality of John's vision in the Revelation. But the fact is, he's looking ahead at the end of the thousand years towards the final judgment. But before that occurs, Jesus will reign from Jerusalem on this earth. And here's an amazing thing. One more scripture passage with me this morning. Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7, uh, I don't know, verse 17. I don't have these exact verses down. Um, verse 23, verse 23, Daniel 7, verse 23. 
he gave me this explanation. I'm going too fast for you, aren't I? I don't hear pages slipping. <laughs> write, them, write the reference down. Read it when you get home. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth that will be different from the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. You remember that from a week or so ago? That there are ten kingdoms that will come together and be given power for a short time. They will overthrow and destroy Babylon. And then they, along with the, the beast, will come against Jerusalem. This is what led up as we began today toward Armageddon. And verse 24, the ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue the three. He will speak against the Most High and oppress His holy people and try to change the set times and laws. In other words, He's going to try to upset everything. Even the, the, the calendar, the times, the sun and the moon. And He's going to try to change the whole thing. And the holy people will be delivered into His hands for a time, times, and a half time. But the court will sit. And listen to this, these next couple of verses because they're really, really important. His power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey Him. Notice the middle of that paragraph, what he says, the greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. You know, as we go into the thousand year reign of Christ, there will be two kinds of people on this earth. Strange as it may seem, there will be all those who survived the final battle, including the Israelites, who have been saved spiritually when they've seen Jesus Christ, but they're not included in that rapture and return. They don't become believers until they look on Him whom they pierced. And so... All of these natural people will move into the Millennial Kingdom. And all of us who have come back with Christ or met Him in the air will also move into the Millennial Kingdom. What are we going to do? We're going to be these glorified, resurrected people. How's that going to work? Well, you recall I started out by saying that Satan is the god of this world, small g, the prince of the powers of the air. He rules the world through an evil kingdom, uh, through princes and through demons and through uh, evil uh, angels that he has placed all over the world. They're everywhere. They're in every court. They're in every capital. They're in every uh, place of, of legislative bodies. They're everywhere, influencing, guiding subtly directing the course and events of history unbeknownst to them within the plan and purposes of God. But, they're going to all be locked up for a thousand years. Who will take their place? 
the holy ones of God, we will. We will take their place. We will be the ones in direct communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, scattered over this earth, who will influence, guide, direct, counsel, and move the peoples of the earth to obey the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in the grand scope of history, God will take this final time to show us, and this is where the perspective is so important, He will take this final time to show us what Eden was intended to be. A place where everyone obeyed the Lord. A place where the lion ate straw like an ox and the wolf lay down with the lamb and the serpents were not harmful. A place of peace. A place of beauty and tranquility where a lifespan was hundreds of years without loss of vigor and strength, and where the holy ones of God reigned and ruled with Jesus Christ and, and dispersed His kingdom throughout the world. God has that in store for us, friends. This is not the end. This is the final chapter of human history. There is a bit of a, an epilogue that's still to come, but this is the final chapter. And when God has written this chapter and shown through a man what it would have been like had the first Adam done the right thing, through the second Adam, He will show how it should have been. And Jesus Christ in flesh as a man once again will rule the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords and demonstrate what Adam failed to demonstrate. You see how God brings it full circle? He not only redeems us, He redeems the world. He redeems human history. He redeems His purposes and plan and restores everything that was lost. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be front row seats. We're right there while it all unfolds. What a glorious future remains for the people of God. We still have to talk about heaven and what that's going to be like and a new heaven and a new earth and the glorious things to come, which we'll catch next week. But I hope this gives you encouragement. That's why Paul says, Therefore, Know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Be steadfast. Be consistent. Be faithful. Because in the end, we win. We win. And we win with our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you for this message of redemptive hope that you will recover everything that was lost, and restore it in our Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen.